Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to have you here today. It's so good to see you here in the sanctuary. And for those of you that are watching us online, welcome. What a beautiful day it is. Um, I think it's supposed to be up to 60 degrees here, which is going to be really nice day. Um, so maybe we have put, uh, maybe we put the winter behind us. Don't count on it. No, don't count on it. <laughs> wow. Well, let me just uh, welcome you that if you're new to our church, uh, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to have you here with us. If you didn't get a chance, outside of the sanctuary to the right, there's a welcome table. You don't have to go there now, but if you uh, would visit there afterwards, they have a gift that we would love to give to you, and we would love to know of your uh, attendance here. If any of you have prayer requests, uh, any person here have a prayer request, please feel free to send it into the church. Um, Christina can take care of that for you. Or you could fill out a card at the welcome table. There's a card out there. Put it on the list. We would love to um, be able to pray for you throughout the week. If it's something that you just want the elders to pray about, you can let that let us know. Or if you want it going out to all of the congregation, please let us know as well. There is intercessory prayer that begins um, on Sunday mornings. Um, Joanne and her group are in the... Um, back area of the conference room. So if any of you want to get here at nine o'clock uh, before Sunday school and just pray, pray about um, the church, pray about Pastor Tim's preaching this morning, um, pray um, for uh, other people here in the church, I would, uh, I would encourage there we go, uh, on Sunday mornings as well. Uh, each of you that came in should have gotten a handout. This little handout gives you information about the church, uh, gives you some things that are going on, ongoing groups that are happening in the church. You'll see a saved a date there for the annual uh, ladies conference uh, retreat, which will be in July. There's also a missions moment. If you turn to the back of that, there's a missions moment um, of our missionaries there. I would encourage you to use that. Uh, we support these missionaries. You'll see messages from them on the back. Um, so we ask you to pray for them and maybe, in fact, uh, give to their ministry. And lastly, if any of you need to meet, um, reach any of the elders, all of our pastors and elders' information is on the back, as well as Christina's uh, email address as well. I was just thinking uh, we were... Um, in our Sunday school class talking about the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of it. And I think in, in Ed's class as well, I guess, uh, Ed and Doug's class, Ed uh, was pre uh, talking about the gospel as well from the book of Romans. And I was doing it through a lot of subjects. The gospel is such a beautiful thing that transforms people's lives. So I pray that you would see the wonder of what Christ has done for you. I want to read a passage before we pray um, from Isaiah, uh, chapter 53. I love this passage. It says this, He was despised, Christ, and was rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord, the Father, has laid upon Christ, the Son, the iniquity of us all. When you hear that gospel message, praise God, the Father, for this great plan. Praise Jesus Christ for providing your salvation. Praise the Holy Spirit for opening your heart to the wonder of this salvation. Every day, praise him. The gospel is not just for unsaved, it is for believers as well. Preach that gospel message to yourself. As we sing today, as we hear Pastor Tim preach today, hear gospel and hear what God is doing to transform and change people. Let's pray. Father, I am overwhelmed with who you are. Father, I, I can get so easily offended and so can we. And you are offended hour after hour, moment after moment by us. But you planned to send your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, before this world was ever created, to live a life we could never live and to die a death in our place and to rise victoriously for us so that we could have forgiveness from sin, that we could have a family in you, that we could have freedom from sin and that we could have a future. Lord, I praise you for that. The gospel is such a beautiful aspect of good news. I pray that instead of just jamming law and judgment and criticism, I pray that we would preach grace and kindness and compassion that you've sent us. Yes, there's sin, Father, so open our eyes to the mourning over our sin, but focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he sat down at you, your right hand. He's interceding for us today. Help us to worship him well today in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Chapel family. Highlight it if you are able to. We'd love to have you stand and sing to the Lord with us. Yeah. 
Father, thank you for such a wonderful and mighty salvation, Lord. Thank you that you have clothed us in righteousness, your righteousness, Lord God. Thank you that we have atonement for our sins. We have forgiveness for our sins through your blood, Father. Thank you for the gospel, Lord God, that has saved us and cleansed us and washed all our sins away as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. Lord, thank you. Thank you for such a wonderful and mighty salvation. And Lord, as Pastor Tim comes and reads the word to us and preaches to us, Lord God, may we be transformed and may we be changed to more in the image of you, Lord God, and this, and this Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and this changed into the image of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. We will be reading from Matthew chapter 5, uh, 17 through 20. And it says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will be any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. to see each of you here this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you will open it to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. 
I was thinking uh, of the irony of this text, that as Ed began to read, it, it kind of hit me, uh, the aspect of it that I've been studying all week, and this profound statement that Jesus makes, and I thought, what if Ed got up this morning and read the first verse and said, and that's me, Okay. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. If Ed said and said, and, said oh, and that's me, the irony of this text would smack you right in the face. Okay, I've been looking at this all week. It is, it is a, a, an amazing statement from Christ. And when he made it, it had that kind of shock value, if you will. It, it stood the religious leadership straight up like, what? One of the most shocking statements in scripture. So I was thinking this week about loaded statements. Um, a loaded statement is something like this. It's a summary that captures the essence or emotion of a larger picture, right? So when we think of the Constitution, uh, one of the phrases that you'll sometimes see people have on a bumper sticker or whatever is, we the people. Okay, and we all, when we hear that statement, read into that statement, we import into that concept all of the truth uh, kind of embodied in the preamble to the Constitution. Or uh, another one would be this, I have a dream, right, Martin Luther's speech in 1963 when he, he spoke of this, this hope. And all of, the, all of the movement was captured in those three words, right? Well, when you come to this passage today that we're going to study, kind of work our way through, it is a loaded statement. It, it is highly controversial, particularly in the first century. I don't think as much in the day that we live in because we have a fuller understanding. We have the perspective of looking back on what Christ accomplished, and we can see how it has in fact been fulfilled in and through the work of Christ. The text that we look at today is a comprehensive and dense uh, passage that has massive, massive amounts of truth packed into this little statement. It's kind of like John 1, 29. I was trying to think of another text that kind of wraps up a lot of salvation history in a statement. I thought of John 1, 29. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming on the scene, he stops the crowd that is being attracted to him and his message, and he says, as he points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that statement, Lamb of God, massive biblical truth from the Old Testament would, would fly into the mind of every Jewish hearer. They would think Passover lamb, they would think all the sacrifices that were given, burnt offerings that were given, sin offerings that were given, all of that would kind of collide in there, just rise up in their minds. When John said, behold the Lamb of God, well the text today functions in a similar fashion. It tells us how the whole of scripture ties together and has a singular focus. Sadly, most of us treat the Bible as a collection of unclassified gems. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? We, 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 we have our favorite verses, okay, that we memorize, and it's good to have verses that are favorite verses, 
but it's better if you understand how your favorite verse fits into its context, into its book, and into the larger, whether it's Old or New Testament, and how it, in, 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 in a sense, informs the entire picture, where it fits in that, so that it's not a disconnected gem that's here and one here and one here, but it's a string of pearls that make up a beautiful necklace that adorns the one that wears it, okay? So this text calls us to treat scripture as a whole story. It puts an emphasis on what we call in theology salvation history, the unfolding or the coming to light of God's plan and purposes ultimately through the person of Christ. Does that make sense when I say that? So this text kind of like, it's super dense. Uh, it's kind of hard to whittle it down and kind of get to the, the little piece, these four verses, without getting distracted by a lot of the big picture. Okay, so I'm going to do my best. Okay, so when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, a question probably pops into your mind. Or if you, if you pause and think about it for a little bit, a question's gonna emerge in your mind. Why would Jesus have to make a declaration, I did not come to abolish the law? Because it sounds defensive, right? It sounds like somebody must have said, Jesus doesn't care about the law. And in fact, that is true. Right? The religious establishment repeatedly accused Christ of not valuing the Old Testament. And so Jesus has had enough of it already. And he is responding to the presumption that they have brewing in their minds. And, and you know, if you've read through the Gospels, often Jesus knows what they're thinking and says. And I think that's what's going on here. I did not, in defense of myself and my purpose and God's entire plan in the revelation of Scripture, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And you have to, in, in what sense or for what reason would they accuse him of this? And I, I think there are two reasons. One is his hopeful embrace of outsiders. They hated the fact that he was the friend of sinners, that he cared for them that he loved them and in fact called them, right? Matthew, the tax collector. He says, Matthew, I want to come to your house and eat a meal. And the Pharisees stand outside saying, I told you, he's a friend to sinners. He has no regard for the religious establishment, but he offers an abundant hope to people who were self-conscious of their sin and they hated him for that. He also drew this accusation because he exposed their religious hypocrisy, okay? He would frequently point out that they practiced their good works to be seen by men. He accuses them of gliding around in robes. I don't know who said that. I heard that somewhere in my past, but I love the picture. Because that's what the Pharisees did. They, they glided around in their ostentatious robes. And Jesus said, and they love in that setting to get the applause of people. You know what Jesus says? In that applause, they get all they get. They don't have the approval of God because they are distancing people from the grace of God rather than attracting people to the grace of God. And Jesus comes to straighten things out. And in this passage, the first thing he does is he makes a bold claim. The bold claim is, 
I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Okay, now I want to understand why this is a bold claim. You have to understand what is meant by the words law and prophets. Okay, law and prophets is um, a loaded statement, or it is a way to abridge and summarize the entirety of the whole Old Testament. Right, Jesus will later say the entire the entire Bible is summarized in one command: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two. Meaning, you could take the entire superstructure of the Old Testament and hang it on those two pins and appropriately represent it. Because when you do that, you are summarizing the message of the Old Testament. Now, if you struggle with understanding how the Old Testament is about loving God and loving your neighbor, it's because we tend to read this, the Bible story in small pieces without understanding the larger picture. Okay? So just let, let that kind of hang in your minds. So Law and Prophets is a summary of the Old Testament. Matthew seven twelve he says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This sums up the law and the prophets. It, 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 it kind of puts in this, uh, what were those things called that we had in college that we weren't supposed to use, but we did? The little yellow books, cliff notes, okay? It kind of condenses the whole story into a much shorter statement, okay? Cliff notes are a gift from God for people with my <laughs> issues, okay? I'm just saying, okay? Uh, he says, I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. And this is a fascinating word to meditate on. In what sense does Jesus, and the idea is to, to bring to fullness, to bring to fruition, to bring to its true purpose. One of the things I want you to understand is that when you're reading the Old Testament, you should always be thinking in terms of trajectory or the direction, the arc to which it is moving. Okay? So that you, when you read the Old Testament, you really, it's always saying something then that has fulfillment in the future. Okay? And if you don't read the Bible that way, you'll miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. I did not come to destroy, but to fill it up, to be what the Old Testament points to. And, and if you've read through the gospel account of the birth of Christ, Okay, particularly Matthew's gospel. Uh, if you flip back a couple of pages to Matthew 1, verse 22, at the time of the birth of Christ, it says this. Just flip back one page. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That event happened to fulfill the Old Testament scripture. So the Old Testament scripture in Isaiah 7:14 made a promise that had future fulfillment. And what Matthew is saying is when Christ was born via the Virgin Mary, the word of God was fulfilled. Okay, does that make sense? The, it, it comes to fruition. It comes, what, what was hidden becomes visible. Okay, look at 2.15 of uh, Matthew. 2.15. Uh, and this is, this is the, the, the account when Moses, or when uh, Moses, when Joseph takes Mary and Jesus down to Egypt to protect them from, him from Herod, who is trying to kill him. Remember that account. Okay, and when this happens, it says, 
uh, verse 15, it says, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see how that's functioning? There's an Old Testament statement that finds its greater fulfillment and purpose in Christ. Okay? So, so it, it, he says, I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. A bold claim that relies on a couple distinctions in the Old Testament. Okay, if you think about the Old Testament law, so we know the prophets point forward to Christ in very clear ways. Isaiah 53 that, Ed read, or that James read earlier points forward to the crucifixion of Christ from a perspective hundreds of years prior to it, about seven to 800 years prior to it. The law portions of the Old Testament, that is the writings of Moses, contain civil laws, that is laws that govern the nation. And, and I think Jesus is alluding to that kind of thing when he says in the gospel that one greater than Solomon is here, or one greater than Jonah the prophet is here. What does that mean? It means that there's things that occurred in the life of Jonah and there's characteristics of King Solomon in his wisdom that anticipate a wiser king. You following me? So Solomon, he's the wisest in that time. He anticipates a greater king. And Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here. Think about that. The story of Jonah comes up and he says, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, who was thrown into the water for the saving of the people on the ship because of his own sin, Christ thrown into the waters of death to save us because of our sin. Do you see? There's this, that Old Testament picture points to something greater that finds its full realization in the New Testament. So that's this national or civil. He's a greater king. There are also ceremonial laws that are bound up in temple, sacrifice, and priesthood. If you're literate in the New Testament, you know that Jesus is called the great high priest. You know that Jesus is called the greater sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. In the book of Hebrews, once for all, he lays down his life, right? See, you understand that there's a trajectory. There's an Old Testament sacrifice, and then there's the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice that ends all sacrifice because it is so profound, wonderful, and glorious. And then you come to this category of the moral law. So there's civil, ceremonial, temple-related things. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says to the religious establishment, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they lose their minds, why? Because they thought he was talking about the physical temple. And they're like, that's ludicrous. That could never happen. But the scripture says this, but he was talking about the temple of his body, which presented, represented the fullness of the temple picture that was always anticipating a final temple in Christ who would be the sacrifice, the priest, and the dwelling of God, all wrapped up in one. And our salvation is no longer found in the Old Testament law, but it is certainly anticipated in it. Does that make sense? It's bound up in it. All those sacrifices promised a greater sacrifice. And every priest that lived and died anticipated an eternal priest who would never die, who could stand before God and declare our righteousness through his shed blood. Okay, so he fulfills the national, he fulfills the ceremonial, he also fulfills the moral. And I think the charge in this verse, when Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law, I think the prophets are the ceremonial and civil, and I think the law portion is the moral law of God. They, they think he's careless with it. 
And he says, contrary to the fact. I am actually more careful about it. And, and, and what he does is, he, he kind of argues through how they're dealing with the law and then points to a greater fulfillment of it, right? So there's a command in the Old Testament. It says, do not commit adultery. So Jesus will say, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks. Jesus will say, do not commit, or Jesus will say, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Who's he quoting? He's quoting Moses. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And then he does something crazy. But I say to you, where did Moses get the Ten Commandments? On what mountain? On the Mount Sinai, from the hand of God. Now think about this. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone that looks to the woman to lust has committed adultery. What did Jesus just do? He just went to the heart of the law because what did the Pharisees say? Well, I've never gotten into bed with someone else, therefore I haven't violated that law. And Jesus says, yes, you have. You violated the spirit of the law. You see, so in regards to the law, what is he? He's a law teacher at a higher level, really assuming the position of God, but he is also the law fulfiller. Okay, and this is the part you must see. The law that I want to keep the morality that I desire can only be found outside of my performance because I am a failure. It can only be found in the accomplishment of Jesus through the life that he lived for me. Because in his life, at the end of his life, he can look at the Pharisees and say to them, which of you accuses me of sin? And there is silence. Because the law that was given, he lived it perfectly. That's why we say, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. It's why we sang a few minutes ago, merit not my own. Meaning, if I have any standing with God, it is not derived from my performance, my life. And then at the end of the song, we sang, merit now my own. Through faith in Christ. I love that song. And just what a beautiful proclamation. So, so what's going on here? When Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill, it, it gives us the indication that the, New, that the New Testament and the Old Testament point in a direction. There's this idea of progression or continuance bound up in the storyline. So, and, and it's strongly implied in the statement of, that Christ gives. What Christ is saying is, I am not telling a new story. Because that's what the Pharisees are saying. You're trashing the Old Testament. You're abolishing it. What does Jesus say? I came to fulfill it. I am the final chapter of that story. Does that make sense? He's the last chapter of the book that the Old Testament has been writing. And the Old Testament repeatedly has indications that it's in anticipation of something greater. And something final. Okay, so, so what's this sense of progression? And what does it mean that Christ is telling not a new story, but that he is the final chapter of the same old story? And I want to I, I introduce a word to you. Okay, it's not a word you don't know, but the word obsolete. Okay, what does the word obsolete mean? And because I know some of you check me on your phones, I looked it up. It's, honestly, it's not even complicated. It simply means to be out of date. So I, I was thinking this week, do you guys remember road maps? I mean, 
at my dad's store, we had a four-foot section of roadmaps for the whole country. <laughs> Guess what? It's not there anymore. Does it mean it's not there anymore because it's obsolete? Do you understand? Does it mean that if my phone's broken and I have a roadmap in my car and I pull it out, that it has no value? Is that what that means to say it's obsolete? Yes or no? No. No, I mean, if my phone's broken and I have a roadmap, I'm going to be glad I had it because it still has value. You remember Google Maps? And you would, you would print out the, the directions to go somewhere on like six pages. And if you're in the city, it was horrifying, right? Because you're trying to read that end drive and not be distracted. That's why I can't fulfill the law, okay? Right there, okay? So you have those, something like that. Do you, do you remember the overhead projector? We used to do our songs on the horrifying overhead projector. And they would be crooked or, or out of orientation. And you're like, man, it, Let's be honest, okay? It was great. It was modern technology. It had great value, but when this came along, guess what? I mean, if you came into a church, and if next Sunday we had a projector here, an overhead projector, you guys just be like, PT, like, do you, do you know there's a thing called a computer and et cetera, et cetera? So I thought about the typewriter, right? So I, I remember clunking on a typewriter that was not electric. I know, Ralph Fiore, you can relate. Okay? I remember the electric. So you had to depress the key about two inches in order to action the letter. And if you did two at one time, five of them would jump up and jam. Right? And you're reaching in, trying to pull them back down, and your fingers are black. You feel like you just voted. Right? It's just, it feels that way. And then it went to... Electric typewriters, which were great. And then do you remember Selectrics with the ball? And now you could type like 100 words a minute. And the keys would never get jammed because it was a ball. And all the young people are looking at me like, a what? They wouldn't even know the sound. I was going to get a recording and play the sound just to give you an illustration. So here's my thought. Okay, then you get word processors, which were cool. I honestly, I never had one because I couldn't afford one. But by the, time, by the time computers and MS Word, you remember the, 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 the prompt on the, the black screen with orange things on it, right? The prompt that you could start then doing documents. And then Microsoft Word came and you're just like, wow. So here's my point. If you walked into the building and you heard clunk, clunk, Clunk. I can't do this as good as though because I'm not brave enough, okay? But if you heard that, you would be like, you'd, you'd walk in quietly and you would look around the corner and you'd see me there doing that. You would be like, PT, what are you doing? It, 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 something greater has come. That thing that was called a typewriter has now morphed into this really cool thing called a keyboard and it attaches wirelessly to your laptop if you can figure it out, okay? <laughs> it does, they tell me it does, but I still, I still use it. So what's the point? The point is that we value the old technology less. We are not saying it has no value. It has value. You could still use it if the electric went out, okay? But, it points to something greater. And that's exactly how the Old Testament functions. And it's how Jesus declares himself in this bold claim. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. John 5. Just turn to John real quick. John 5. 
It's a fascinating passage, 39 to 40. John 5, 39. And I will read. Jesus is rebuking the, 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 the Pharisees. He's, 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 he's testifying. And he says to them, he says, you diligently search the scriptures. And one thing you could say about the Pharisees is that they were fastidious and detailed in their study of the Old Testament. It's all that was there, there was. They were captivated by it as a means of finding their own righteousness. And so they were diligent and they made up all these little ways that you could keep the law without actually keeping it. They domesticated it. They dumbed it down. They stole its value as a means of pointing to the fact that I am a sinner in need of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, watch this, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them, as, the, as an instrument, by using them, you have eternal life. They thought that their law keeping made them acceptable to God. And we can slip into that mindset. We can become people who smuggle performance into the work of grace. Think that I gotta do my part and we devalue the work of Christ. I'm not saying you don't have to do righteousness because the Bible, this text will be very clear on that. But Jesus says to them, you search them, you think you have eternal life by means of them, that they are the instrument of, if you obey them, you have it. He says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Meaning if you rightly understood the Old Testament, you would always see that I am the story of the Old Testament. Isn't that an amazing statement? I wish I had hours to unpack that for you. He says, but you refuse to come to me to have life. Search, you search the scriptures. You think that by that instrument, you have eternal life. They testify, in fact, of me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's a very similar statement in Matthew 5, isn't it? It points to me, and you refuse to come to me, therefore you can't have life. But if you come to Christ, understanding that he is the fulfillment of the law, you get everything in Christ. Jesus is central to the Bible story. He is the aim of scripture. And every sermon that we preach in, in some fashion should end up at Jesus. I remember one pulpit that I preached in when I was very young. Had a little placard inside that was right there. And here's what it said. It said, sir, we would see Jesus. Meaning in everything you say, by God's grace, exemplify for us the glory of Christ. Exemplify for us the one to whom the whole story points. Okay, so I'm going to give you a condensed version of one thought I wanted to share. The Passover lamb is probably one of the most beautiful stories of trajectory that emerges out of the Old Testament, right? So you know the story quickly that the nation of Israel is in bondage. They're being abused and mistreated as slaves. And God says Moses to be a deliverer. And Moses does all kinds of powerful signs and wonders to, 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 to spring these people free, to, 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 to put pressure to bear on the nation of Egypt. And, and occasionally Pharaoh would say, okay, 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 I, I'll give, take the people. And then when Moses would get ready to take me, no, I'm not going to let you go. And then another plague and another plague and another plague. And then the final plague, the Passover. And the Passover is, is a difficult text, isn't it? 
Because the idea is this, God has said to the nation of Egypt, if you don't let my people go, then your firstborn will die. And the way that Israel would, present, would protect themselves from the, the angel passing over and bringing death, the angel of death, was by slaying a lamb for meal, taking its blood, which symbolized its life, painting it on the doorpost and the lentil. And here's what the Bible says in Exodus. And when the angel of death passes over, he will see the blood and he will spare you. He will pass over. Okay? That text has a trajectory that runs the entire length of the Bible. So that in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, if you want to write it down, you can look it up later. The Apostle Paul will say this, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you see the trajectory from the Old Testament Exodus event that that lamb that died for the sparing of the life of another, so Christ stands in our place on Calvary's cross and Father says to us, when I see his blood applied to your life, I will pass over. The penalty for your sin, born by Christ. Cleansing and salvation through the fact that he stood in front of you and took the hit that you deserved so that you could be forgiven and set free. Folks, do you understand something? In the book of Exodus, in the law, is the forecast of the work of Christ. That's how Paul read the Bible. He saw that all of it had momentum. It had progression. It was going somewhere. It was pointing to something. And it has an end point. And that end point is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.26 says, But now Christ has appeared at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Is that not beautiful? Christ appeared. Why? Not to yuck it up. Not to get applause, but to go to a cross and to bear the awful consequence of my sin so that his blood could be put on the doors of my life and over the lentil so that when God's judgment passes over, he'll see the blood and I will be spared, not because of merit of my own, but because of the merit of Christ. And folks, if you, if you understand that, you then begin to understand what Jesus meant. I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to be what it pointed to, hope. What does the law do? The law exposes my sin. Try to keep the law. Tell me how you're doing. Be honest. Be honest, brutally honest. Oh, I've never committed adultery. That's not the question. I've never lied. Do you tell the whole truth? All of it. Do you see, the law exposes and Christ saves. So it is a beautiful exposure if when my need is exposed, I flee to Christ for hope and salvation. All right, the next verse is verse 18. I'm going to have to pick up my pace. It says, Jesus says this, and, and he's, he's going emphatic now. Okay, when he says, I tell you the truth, some of your texts may say, truly, truly. All right, it is an emphatic statement derived from the first statement. 
And it is a hopeful clarification of Christ's claim, a hopeful clarification of the bold claim. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Again, you get the idea of progression, right? Some things at Christ's time were not yet done, but they were moving towards fulfillment, okay? So what is Jesus saying? He's giving a hopeful clarification. None of God's purposes, none of God's plan emphatically, none of it can disappear or be voided, made unacceptable. It all must be accomplished. Jesus is attesting to the full authority of the Bible down to the smallest letter. This, this idea, not one jot or tittle in the King James Version, it says, right, is the stroke of a pen or a dot. We would think of something like an apostrophe in our language. Okay, it changes the nuance of the word. Jesus says down to that level, and what is he saying? He's just giving the extremes to say that every bit of God's word will be fulfilled, and that is a powerful clarification because none of it can disappear. None of it can be voided. It all must be completed. And for how long? He says, till heaven and earth pass away. Everything must be fulfilled. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth may pass away. Meaning there is going to be a day when it all ends. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus says this, heaven and earth may pass away. Why does he say that? Because it's the most stable thing I know. I know my house may not stand forever. But in my, in my thinking, in my rationale, what am I thinking? The dirt's going to be there. And Jesus says, heaven and earth may pass away, even the dirt. But even if that happens, my word will not disappear. It is the unvoidable truth of God that you can build your life on. And when we get to the end of the book, what's he going to say? A wise man builds his house where? on a rock that is on the truth of God's word. What does this mean? It means that we are people of hope. Look at 11 and 12 real quick of this chapter. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they treated the Old Testament prophets. You stand in a beautiful trajectory. You stand in a beautiful storyline. God protected them and God vindicated them and he will do the same for you if you trust him. We are people of hope. Despite the appearance of circumstances, we can sing and we can say, I stand on Christ the solid rock. Even though I may live in a world of twisted morality, of corruption, of brokenness, of uncertainty, God is in control. And this text tells me that his will will prevail to the end of time. That leads us into verse 19, a sobering warning. A sobering warning. He says, therefore, so this draws out of that statement that God's word isn't going away, even if you want it to, even if you dislike it strongly. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it is going away or because you simply ignore it. What does he say? He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside, and that is to nullify, 
to do what Jesus is accused of doing, one of the least of these commands, and teaches others to do accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I think the implication here is we as God's children should not play games with God's word. I think the idea is that God is not successfully ignored. Is God ignored? And is God belittled by people? The answer is yes. But is he successfully ignored? And the answer from God's word is no. I think the implication is that these religious leaders have distorted the law of God. And the warning comes to them, don't set aside the commands of God. You can't do that without repercussions. Don't nullify it. Don't, don't, don't void it. Look at Matthew 7 real quick. Just flip ahead two pages. Matthew 7, verses 9 to 13. Because the question is, did the Pharisees do this? Uh, seven. Oh. Mark, I'm sorry, Mark 7. Sorry. I apologize. It terrifies me when that happens. Holy. <laughs> Just go back and read your notes that it's there, okay? All right, Mark 7, verses 9 through 12. How is it that the Pharisees nullified the word of God or violated the, the, the issue that they accused Jesus of? How did they do that? Verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. Okay? And what does Jesus mean? He says, you guys are really sophisticated at getting around what is means. Okay? Like, like they, they, they twisted and, and bent and manipulated God's word. He said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then he gives an illustration. He says, Moses said, honor your father and mother. That's a clear command. What does it mean? It means when your parents are destitute, you have a God-given responsibility to care for them without condition. There's no condition on that command. Okay, so if at some point in their life, my parents are destitute, I have an obligation before God to honor them. That is to care for them in their time of need. I think it has broader ramifications, but I think that's the one that Jesus is going at here. He says, honor your father, your, your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his mother or father must be put to death. That's the strength of the Old Testament law. But you say, okay, you see what Jesus is doing? Here's the command. But you say, you, and what's the fine way that they get around this? Watch, it's fascinating. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever you might otherwise have received from me is, the word is Corbett, it's devoted to God. Oh, I'm sorry, I already, that portion of my bank account is already dedicated to God. You know what Jesus does? He says, that is sheer hypocrisy. That is utterly sinful. That is to violate the command, honor your father and mother. If you take what was necessary to help them and you act like you have devoted it to the work of God, you have violated the command, honor your father and mother. Do you see what he's doing? And he, they had a technicality that if I say that portion of my stuff is dedicated to the work of God, then I'm not obligated to care for my parents because I simply don't want to. 
And Jesus is saying, that's a fine way to do what you are accusing me of. You're setting aside the command of God. You're stripping yourself of responsibility to obey and keep it. Go to Matthew 23 then real quick. Matthew 23, 23. One more illustration. And this one's probably a little better known. Matthew 23. By the way, do you guys realize I have a Bible in the pulpit? I usually print my text. I got my old Bible rebound. That's why it looks so nice. It's super old inside, okay? But I got that and I'm so grateful. So grateful. All right, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, woe to you teachers of the law. And the word woe is, is, is where I'm deriving this idea of a sobering warning here. Anyone who nullifies the word of God is going down a bad road. They will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And he points out another way that they do it. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your herbs, mint, dill, cumin. So what did they do? If you go back in historical documents, it says they literally counted out the, uh, I don't know, what's an herb that, that you guys use? Poppy seeds. They literally would count out one for God, nine for me. Is that what God intended? The answer is no. He intended for us to be joyful in our giving, and, and Jesus flatly accuses them of being hypocrites by doing this. You do that. You're fastidious. You are technical. You have domesticated the law so that you can say, yes, down to the seed. We got it. And then he, then he cuts hard. But sometimes truth is needed. He says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, he's not saying that the way they did the seed thing was proper from the heart. It was purely technical obedience. But Jesus is saying, if you had paid as much attention to caring for the poor, to those that were neglected, then you could have said you were fulfilling the word of law of God at some level. But do you see what they were doing? They were nullifying one command by being super careful in their observance of another. Well, then you're not obeying God's law. That's why James says, if you break one of the laws, you're guilty of all. If I break one of my God's commandments, what am I? I'm a lawbreaker. Even though I may only be guilty of breaking one, I'm still a lawbreaker in need of God's grace and God's forgiveness. So the warning is sober. And Jesus says, if you do that, in verse 19, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, and the idea is with sincerity, will be called great in the kingdom of God. And folks, I just want to tell you this. The idea of being least doesn't mean, it's, the idea is not that you get in, but you just have a low status. To be least is probably a Hebraic expression that is saying you're actually not in. You're least in terms of human perspective, but before God, you don't even qualify. Because there is no salvation by law observance. Does that make sense? It's a little complicated, but I think so important. So important. The law is meant to expose our sin. It's meant to cut deeply and to convict and to drive us to our need for grace. But if you tamper with it like these folks did, it loses its capacity to point you to your need of Christ. 
Do you see, if you domesticate the law and say, what is adultery? Well, adultery is I have not been in someone else's bed. I can still be a pervert and not do that. Do you understand? That's why Jesus is saying the law is much, that, that broader command has deep ramifications. It's about the heart. It's not about the location. It's about what's going on in your heart and in your mind. That's what matters. And these guys are saying, well, we didn't do that. And we've never stolen. We've never been generous, but we've never stolen. Well, the, the command to not steal is a command to be generous. He's not saying, well, as long as I never steal from someone, I'm doing right with my finances. No. The word in the law goes much farther. But they narrowed it down. They domesticated it. Don't mess with God's law. That's the idea here. Don't justify your sinful behavior, your sinful attitudes, your sinful actions towards others by saying, well, I kept this law. I want you to notice the way he reverses the order at the second part of verse 19. Whoever sets aside, but then he says, but whoever practices and teaches. You know what he just did? He inverted it. He made practicing God's law to have priority over the teaching of God's law. It doesn't matter if you know God's law. What matters is, do I as a Christian, as a representative of God, as salt and light, as Doug talked about last week, am I honoring his word? Am I following it? Am I obeying it? That becomes the, the very powerful ramification here. The true test of salvation, not the means of salvation, but the true test of salvation is heart change that results in a changed life. That results in obedience. That's what Jesus is saying. He's clearly implying that the Pharisees, despite the sincerity of some, and despite how fastidious they were about law-keeping, that if they did not experience new birth by the power of the Spirit of God and the forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of the ultimate Passover lamb, they would be outsiders. And yet all of their life, what did they appear to be? Ultimate insiders. look at the last thought real quick verse 20 Jesus says for I tell you that unless your righteousness and this this is I, I, I hope this kind of you're like wait a minute, what I tell you and this again emphatic truly truly unless your righteousness and the idea here is greatly surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. And this certainly not literally means never, ever. Okay, and I'm going to tell you something. When Jesus said that to the first century Jew, it was devastating. Why? Because they esteemed the teachers and the Pharisees. The average person was, was kind of just simply overwhelmed by how good they were or how good they looked as they glided around in their robes. They were overly and unduly impressed by their presence, but they didn't see the true heart that was inside of them. Jesus says to them, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're like a casket painted brilliant white inside dead men's bones. You're like cups that are washed on the outside. I don't know if you've ever done this. My wife's away for two weeks right now, okay? There's stuff going on in the kitchen sink, okay? 
I'm just saying, when it turns black, I address it. <laughs> Actually, after the last time she was away, I was like, oh man, I, it's, I smell something. <laughs> Okay. Jesus is saying, you, you're like the cup, you wipe, if, if somebody gave, if you went to someone's house for dinner and they gave you a cup that was beautiful on the outside, let's say it's, 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 it's like laminated with gold, okay, and you look inside and it's, ugh. it don't matter how good it looks on the outside, it is corrupt. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You guys, you wash the outside of the cup, you give a lot of attention to all of the externals, but the issues of the heart, loving God, loving mercy, generosity, you don't even lift a hand. You tie heavy burdens on everybody else, but you don't lift such as a finger. You see why they were so mad at him. He just called it what it was. He called their hypocrisy what it was. And then he says to these people, unless your righteousness exceeds, you will in no way enter. This would leave them gasping in dismay, conscious of their spiritual bankruptcy. You will never, ever enter the kingdom of God unless you're better than them. They would be like, well, how? And in what world does an average person compete with such, intele with such intellectual elites, with people that are so good in interpreting and understanding and dissecting scripture? How do you compete with that? The question is, what kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about? And what kind of righteousness did the Pharisees have? Because Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, which presumes what? They had some kind of righteousness that Jesus wants to constantly rip off of them. He wants to expose them for who they are so they can see their need of his grace. So they had righteousness, but what kind was it? Well, it was a, it was a righteousness of law-keeping. It was a thin veneer. It was skin deep. It wasn't affecting the heart. So Jesus tells a parable to help us understand it, Luke 18. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. The one is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. You just hit the two extremes of morality. The super righteous, the elite, and then the piece of junk. He says, they went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And literally, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Remember, they pray in public to be seen by men. They count out the seeds. I give tithes of all that I possess. And then it says, but the publican could not even lift up his head. But he beat himself upon the chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did he know? He knew he lacked righteousness. What did the Pharisee think? The Pharisee thought he had righteousness. And the truth is this, he did. But it was a deficient, substandard righteousness that caused him to feel good even though he was deeply broken. He couldn't see it. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, this publican went down to his house forgiven rather than this Pharisee. And folks, that's when the penny drops. The righteousness that comes and proclaims my works, my goodness, my behavior, my law-keeping is deficient. But the righteousness that we sang of, 
Merit not my own, merit not derived from my performance or my hard work. And I realize that it is in Christ's righteousness alone that I find hope, everything changes. Now you understand why in the first few verses that Pastor James went through on the Beatitudes, now you understand why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. The Pharisees never once hungered and thirsted after righteousness because they had righteousness, but it was deficient. It was an inadequate clothing. And so Paul says in Romans 3, 21, he says, but now, and, and, and just, I'm going to end with this, okay, but now, which means what? There was something going on in the Old Testament story that Paul's been talking about in the book of Romans. He's been reflecting on the Old Testament story, Abraham's life, etc. He's been reflecting. And he says, but now in Paul's day, uh, righteousness from God has been revealed now with greater clarity to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law and the prophets in their regulations were saying, if you in fact keep all of it, you are like this. Well, there's only one person that ever kept all of it. And his name is Jesus. And Paul is saying, but now in the last days, Galatians 4, 4, at the right time, God sent forth his son. There's trajectory. There's backstory that's finding fulfillment and fullness. It's found in the person of Christ. He says, to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness, as compared to the righteousness of the religious establishment, this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Does that, let's let that settle in. I don't need a righteousness of performance. Now let me say this to you. This text is very clear. Verse 19 is very clear. If you set aside the commands, there's a, there's a red flag for you. If you say, well, I, I've trusted Christ. I, I prayed the prayer. I'm a Christian. But your life has never changed. You should not comfort yourself. If there's no desire to live the word of God, not to have righteousness of your own, but to glorify God, James is going to come after you very hard in the book. Not Pastor James. <laughs> but the epistle of James is going to come after you hard. It's going to say, if you say that I love Jesus, but you don't keep his word, you have a farce for a confession of faith. Because true, when Christ intervenes and when Christ comes with his righteousness, it will always change your heart. That's the evidence of scripture. Okay? So, so be careful. Okay? Be careful. I just, I, I just want to say this real quick. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, I used to be so very righteous and then he says when the light went on I realized that my, uh, the light of Christ Acts chapter 9 when he struck down on the road to, to uh, Damascus I'm going to say the road to Emmaus when he struck down what does he, what he he says I saw the righteousness of Christ and what did he realize immediately my righteousness is inadequate it is insufficient it is deficient it is in fact damning because if you think that you are saved apart from Christ by what you do, you are not reading the Bible properly. Because now, in the New Testament era, a righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. 
thank God. I could. Jesus doesn't just show up. He shows up in a storyline. He's anticipated. He's declared. He's prophesied. And he comes and he does everything that Tim Hoff couldn't do. And he rescues me and he saves me and he changes me. Paul, Paul's conclusion is, I came to realize that my spiritual assets, my accomplishments were rubbish. And he says, I jettisoned them. <laughs> what a glorious day. He says, I confess that my righteousness was actually sinfulness. And he says, now I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but one which comes from God by faith in Christ. What is Paul saying? The righteousness that saves you is alien. The reformers called it this. They called it alien righteousness. When you look to God and you say, God, I am a broken man. I am a broken woman. I am a broken young person. I am a sinner. Forgive me. I lack status. I don't have a right to enter the kingdom of heaven. But I want to trust Christ. Here's what God does. He takes the righteousness of Jesus and he covers you with it. Merit, not my own because it comes from Christ. Merit, now my own because I have been covered by the accomplishment of Christ. The life that he lived and the death that he died for a sinner like me. And he changes my life forever. Folks, here's what that will do. It'll make you kind if you understand that. Because the Pharisees, honestly, were just simply mean and judgmental. If you really understand the gospel, you will be kind in your home, in your workplace, in your church, because you're humble. The true gospel will never produce pride. Law always produces pride. Judgmentalism, critique. If you've been changed by God's grace, that stuff starts to fade away, or you haven't been changed by God's grace. Okay, and we all have areas to work on more than others. But don't amuse yourself thinking that you're one thing when you're really not, you're just acting. Have you trusted Christ? Have you come to God like Paul did and said, it's, I need to jettison this facade so that I can have all-surpassing gift of righteousness? It'll make you kind. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. The gospel will make you humble because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There are no Pharisees and teachers and publicans at the foot of the cross. There's just people. It's just people who are sinners in need of a savior. Let God's love change you. Let it free you from duty and let it drive obedience from delight. Folks, if you're a Christian, sometimes we need to get it back again, right? I need clarity. I need to re-understand the gospel. I need to reimagine the gospel. I need to stop smuggling performance into the work of grace. I need to stop thinking that my good living makes God more accessible to me than he does to Cindy Mazzone. Okay? This is what we start to think. We start comparing. Well, I'm better than them. That's evil thinking. It's sinful thinking. And the cross obliterates it unless you get too far away from the cross. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. We, we, we want you to know that our hope is not in our effort. It's in the work of Christ. We're going to sing a song about that in a minute. I want to say this. 
I don't know if this is new for you this morning or if this is the same old story. For me, it's the same old story. I love to hear it and I love to preach it because it changed my life. And my hope is found in nothing less than his blood and righteousness. And if you've never come to a place where you just went to God and said, God, I'm broken, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. It's who I am. Because the minute you cry out like that, the Bible says that God will hear your prayer. Sincerely prayed from a broken heart. God, give me the righteousness of Christ and wash me clean of my sin through the shed blood of your son so that I can love like you want me to love and be humble like you want me to be humble and serve others freely, freely. Pray that prayer to him this morning. Father, thank you for your truth this morning, for the glory of your word. This text is large, dense, even though short, but it can change our lives. It can change our lives. And Lord, I pray this morning, if someone is here who has not trusted Christ, that you would today free them from the burden of performance, free them from the burden of guilt, free them from the burden of shame, and give them hope through the cross work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, it might be that someone this morning just wants to come up front as we sing and just say, Pastor Tim, I want to pray and trust Christ today. Or maybe, Lord, there's someone here that just wants to get on their face before you and say, God, forgive me for my self-righteousness. Forgive me for living a life that contradicts the gospel in my home, with my family, with my kids, with my workplace, in my neighborhood. God, let me be real. Humble me afresh and anew by the cross of Christ. God, do that in our hearts today. I pray. Change us, fill us with the love for Jesus. Pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.
deserve none of this father we just praise you that you are a god that knew our state that knows our state and that you gave your son as a sacrifice for me to do what i could never do lord you loved us so wildly that you laid it all down and justified us through your son. We praise you, Father. In your precious name, 